Welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to check out this interview with the one and the only John Karabi. I have been trying to make this interview happen for almost two years, and it finally came to fruition. He actually called me on the phone yesterday, and it kind of blew my mind. It was April Fool's Day, uh, but I've been a big fan of John since he was the singer of Motley Crue. I love that album that he did with them. I've probably listened to that thing thousands of times. And if I could go back in time and tell 16-year-old me that I would be talking to him, I wouldn't have believed it. And, you know, they say don't meet your heroes, but John was super nice. He was down to earth. And he was also extremely open with me. We, we talked about everything from The Scream, Motley Crue, Rat, Dead Daisies, a cover band he was in with Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains, uh, his family life, uh, having a gun pulled on him, all sorts of crazy shit. He has a new book coming out about his life called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades that everyone should buy. And some of the stories he tells me in this interview are not in the book. So make sure you listen to this interview in its entirety, even if it's on double speed. And also, he has a new album coming out and we get some of the new song titles. So that's kind of exciting. So just enjoy it. I'll shut it now. Welcome to my podcast. This is kind of surreal. You, you called me yesterday on the phone, which is very rare. I usually don't get the phone calls from the actual musicians. It's usually their managers or, or maybe they'll, they'll message me on Facebook or Instagram, but you actually picked up the phone and called. That's pretty amazing. Um, you know, I'm just keeping it real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I get off the phone. I tell my girlfriend, she sees that I'm all excited. And then she goes, yeah, that's crazy. Like, uh, you know, you didn't mention that it was April fools. And I was like, and then I started second guessing it. I was like, wait, was that an April fool's day joke? But no, it was it was me, and, and then today, just having an old man moment, <laughs> and forgetting the fact that I just called you yesterday, and whatever, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, no, it's all good. So, yeah, man, I got I got your whole life story here. So we'll try to get wrap this up in an hour or so. But um, yeah, I learned so much about. I thought I knew so much about you already as a fan, but I learned so much listening to other interviews that you've done. Um, I didn't know that your your mom was really into music, and that's kind of what started your interest in it, right? She played music all the time around the house. Yeah, my um, I think back then, you know, it was uh, my mom belonged to, um, I think it was like Columbia House Record Club, and you would, you know, you could buy like thirteen records for a penny. And then once a week or once a month, they would send a new album that you you just kind of checked off the boxes of all the shit that you liked. Oh. And you would just get these records. And if you didn't like them, you sent them back. And if you liked them, you kept them. And then they charged you whatever the going rate was for an album. So she had like this really eclectic, um, massive album collection of um, Frank Sinatra. But she... You know, Glenn Campbell, Johnny Cash, Trini Lopez, um, you know, just I, I mean, it was unbelievable. All yeah. The, didn't uh, you go to a concert with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin? And you said that while you were impressed by the music and the arrangements, that was cool. But it was the thing that stood out was like the banter between yeah. the two of them. Yeah, my actually my mom uh, and one of my uncles, um they were going to the show and I think there was a third person was supposed to go with them. And they said, Hey, you know, you want to come and see some of our music? And I was like, yeah, sure. So it was Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra. And 
it was more like a fucking comedy show. It was like, like it was so crazy. So Dean Martin's doing his thing. He was like the opening act and he came out and he's doing his trip and he's singing some crazy ballad. I wasn't real familiar with a lot of his stuff, but he's doing his ballad and literally in the middle of the song, like this really quiet part, you hear all this clanking and like rattling. And then all of a sudden Frank Sinatra comes off the side of the stage with one of those old school alcohol carts and he, <laughs> like right in the middle of the song and the whole place went crazy, but he literally just wheeled this card out, grabbed a drink, took two ice cubes, put it in there, poured some whiskey in there and did a little splash of soda water, <laughs> put it in, handed it to Dean Martin. And it just kept walking off the other side of the state. And it was fucking hilarious. So then when Sinatra um, then Sinatra was playing and, um, he was doing, uh, same thing. He was doing a ballad and, um, he, he, so he's doing this ballad. I think it was send in the clowns. Oh, okay. And it's, you know, send in the clowns and he's doing this really low part in the song. And all of a sudden this all through the whole PA you heard what sounded like someone pulling their zipper down and then pissing in a toilet and the toilet flush and then the zipper go back up. And Frank Sinatra just, he was pissing himself laughing. It was Dean Martin in one of the bathrooms, just fucking with him, like pulled the <laughs> zipper down, took a piss in the toilet and then flushed the toilet on him, but with a microphone right on there. purpose. Okay. On wow. Purpose. Yeah, yeah. Totally, totally did it to fuck with him. And the whole night was just shit like that. That's crazy. And so the, but the first time that you kind of fell in love with being on stage was, was it like an elementary school, like a talent show or something? You guys won this, you did some cover songs and you're like, Oh, I really like this having the crowd cheer for me yeah. and kind of the yeah, adrenaline the, of that. The first, I, I went to this Catholic school in Philadelphia called incarnation. And the first talent show I did there, um, I played with this girl guitar player, Lori Miller. And we did um, just an uh, acoustic instrumental of Scarborough, Scarborough Affair by Simon and Garfunkel. And we didn't win. Mm. And then the following year, um, I joined back up for the talent show with a bunch of friends. And we put a little band together and we were rehearsing. And then at the last minute, the guy that was technically supposed to sing um, got in trouble with his parents. He couldn't, he, there's parents, his parents punished him by not allowing him to do mm. the talent show. And I was just like, well, fuck it. I know the lyrics. I'll fuck it. I'll sing it. And, you know, we had a keyboard player, bass player, me playing guitar and a drummer. And we did, I'm not your stepping stone by the monkeys. And, uh, we did House of the um, Rising Sun. House of the Rising Sun by the Animals, and we wound up winning. And it was like such a last minute thing, like of me doing the thing, but it was great. We got all this applause, and and then we won. My dad took us out to pizza afterwards, 
And I was like, oh yeah, this is this is the shit right That's here. That's what this you want. Is, yeah. I dig this. So you saw and then some, I got pizza as well. So. Yeah. <laughs> so you had some good times, but this is a crazy story. I heard I heard this today in an interview talking about this. You were like 10, 11 years old. So you you just started getting into guitar, and there was some hippie guy that worked at the music store that you kind of looked up to, and he knew all the Beatles songs. And and one day you said that he you watched him shoot up heroin and drop dead in front of you. That's yes. got to be a traumatic moment for a kid. Well, it wasn't he he didn't, he didn't work at a music store. He was just like some hippie guy in Philadelphia where I lived. There was um this candy store and and everybody used to hang out there like all the young kids would go in and play pinball and then there was an older group of kids. I was probably I don't know, maybe 8, 9, 10, something like that. And um he 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 was, he was probably, I don't know, in hindsight, I don't even know how old he was, but he was like 17, 18, 19 years old. He had long hair, wore like, you know, I'm talking 69, 70, walked around in a sleeveless suede vest and hip huggers, no shoes. And he had this kind of like acoustic F-hole acoustic guitar. And he would just sit on the corner step and play music. And he played like the Beatles and Credence and, you know, all these songs that were popular on the radio. And I just thought he was the coolest. So I would just sit there and watch him play. And, you know, one day I was in there playing pinball machine and he walked in and I turned around to say something to him. And I saw him like he was tied off and he was putting a needle in his arm. And then he just fucking there was a thud and, and he 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 just dropped dead. So, the, so yeah, but that like influenced where did, you. Where did you get this story? Because I haven't told that. It, it's I, I'm doing a book right now. Right. It, I just got a I just got a publishing offer for it, and I haven't told a lot of people that story. It's in the book though. So yeah, you must have told it was some in some interview. I watched so many interviews with you. It was like fat, like each one had like a different little story. Like you had some really good. So about, yeah, hopefully I don't spoil your book. Cause I know that's coming out too, but that was like, really, I, I heard that. And I was like, that's interesting because that like, so then you never did the needle drugs and stuff. Cause you saw that, like it, it had such an effect. Pretty much. There yeah. was a few incidents, which I won't get into all of them now because sure. again, I don't want to, Cause I talk about all of this in the book and I've yeah. had several incidents when I was younger with, um, you know, heroin with that guy, um, you know, cocaine with another friend who also dropped dead. Um, and then, and then even, even in some of the cover bands that I was in some of the, the cause I was like, I was always kind of like the short young kid that played with all these guys. And there was a few incidents in my life and people that were around me. And I was just like, no, I don't want to do, I don't want to do that. Like <clears throat> I remember being in a band with a guy in Philadelphia and, and he was so hung up on meth that his teeth were rotting out and, and like, he couldn't, he could not play a show unless he did a bump before it just to get him through the set. Right. And Wasn't that the end of uh, your, one of your first bands Angora is because it fell apart because of people doing drugs and stuff. No. Well, that was later. Yeah. But that that was later. happened as well. And I, so I just had like this really, yeah. 
sour viewpoint on 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 drugs in general right so yeah like you said you're in all these cover bands kind of that was the first thing that you did but tell me about this story because i just heard about this recently uh you are you actually or you were you didn't audition for skid row but you had an offer to audition so what, what happened like your pipe burst or something or why didn't you make that audition no 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 it it and, and it's weird because I saw that interview with Rachel. Yeah, yeah. And it, that was never the case. Like, Dave, I knew Dave Sabo when I lived in Philadelphia. Okay. And I moved to California and I was in, um, and I, I want to say that I, I may have just, <clears throat> just got a record deal with the Scream. Okay. Or maybe a, like, Cause they, we signed a deal and then they made us go into a rehearsal room and write for like a year. Oh, Just, wow. Cause we only, when we got our record deal, we had like three songs. That was it. Mm-hmm. We never played a show. We just, you know, and at that time, um, I think Dave was just putting Skid Row together and he, he sent me a copy, like an eight track cassette, of like um you know i'll remember you and youth gone wild and all that shit and and i i was like wow this is great stuff but i don't think and actually now that i think about it i don't think i was in the scream yet i think i was still in angora when he sent me the tape but i i just felt like as much as i liked the songs and then you know according to dave Bon Jovi was all into the band. Right. And he was going to, he was doing, he did a production deal with him. So um, my thing was, I didn't want to, like I had convinced three other people and their wives and girlfriends and kids to come out to California. I didn't want to go, Oh, Hey man, I got this other gig. So uh, thanks for everything. I'm, I'm going back to Cal. I'm going back to Philadelphia. Okay. So I just said, I, I, I just told Dave, like, I couldn't do it. Okay. So he offered so, an audition and you turned down the audition. I turned down the audition. Okay. I, I was never scheduled to audition for them. I okay. just said, no, Dave, you know, I felt really bad. I said, man, I came out here with like three other dudes and I made everybody move. And, you know, and then if I turn around and I move, they're here and we, and I'm going right back to where we all started from. I just didn't feel good about it. Okay. Personally. Oh, yeah. I felt like I was, I, I was responsible for three other people leaving their families and all this other shit and going out to California. And I just didn't feel right about dumping that situation at that point. Okay. That makes uh, sense. And the same thing with, um, Brittany Fox had contacted me. Oh, I didn't hear about that one. Yeah, no, they had contacted me when Dean left and, it was the same thing. I'm like, no, I can't. I, I just in good conscience, I couldn't, couldn't do it. Okay. So then the scream. So this happens. Uh, I love, I just listen, re-listened to this record again today. It's so good. I don't think there's a bad song on it. Even to this day, I feel like it holds up. It's so good, but I didn't know there was kind of a guns and roses connection with that, that Duff McKagan was supposed to be a co-producer on that record with Eddie Kramer. Yes. But then I guess he had shoulder surgery, so then he couldn't do it. Yeah, Duff, and I think th- this is something Duff will even admit himself. He was he was in a weird f- 
state, weird frame of mind, health-wise, um, I guess mentally and physically. Um, he was drinking a lot. He was doing a lot, handfuls of, because he had, I think, a torn rotator cuff or separated his shoulder or some, something. And and um, I, I just remember going over to Duff's house and talking to him and actually sitting down and jamming with him a little bit um, and producing. And he just, he was kind of, I, I mean, I hate talking about, cause I love Duff and, and he's totally got his shit together now, but, um, he, he was kind of fucked up, man. Was, <laughs> he, like, no, I think even he would admit that. Yeah. I don't think that's, yeah, a, he was taking all these pills yeah. and we got together and we, we hung out for maybe an hour, hour and a half. And then he's like, Oh man, I'm going to lay down. And, and then he had this giant, like, I'm talking like a big gulp cup. And um, he was like, yeah, I'm going to lay down now. Uh, yeah, I'm not feeling all that good. And and he literally put all this ice in this big gulp cup, poured a shit ton of vodka in the cup, and then literally like a splash <laughs> of cranberry juice. And he, he just set it next oh to his God. bed. He set this cup next to his bed. And so that when he got up after his nap, he didn't have to get up and go to the refrigerator and make a drink. It was already made. So he was kind of in this weird thing. And I, I, I went back to the record label and I go, I, I'm, you know, it's not about talent. Duff is stupidly talented and he's an incredibly smart human being. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, fuck, man, I, I don't think this guy's going to make it through the fucking recording. <laughs> process. You know what I mean? Like, What he, year was this? Like 90? 89? Probably 89, okay. 90. Okay. So it was after, cause you were friends with them before they were famous or I used to ha- hang out with them on barbecue Sundays at Johnny tea gardens house or something. Yeah. That's gotta be weird. I mean, they were, they came out of, you know, I'm sure they came out of fucking nowhere though. I mean, they just kicked, they were so different than everything else that was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, and I laugh about it. I mentioned this in my book. I said, man, all the other bands that came up behind them, everybody was torn because the two, the two fucking bands that were just killing it, that actually went on to become bigger bands was like poison and guns and roses. So it was like, all these bands were like this conflicted, like, fuck, do I put on lipstick and dye my hair blonde (laughs) or do I fucking buy buy a pair of black leather gloves and put on a denim vest over my leather jacket and do the guns and roses thing. So everybody was just kind of after guns and roses came, everybody was trying to figure out what, like, what, okay, what do we do now? Like, do we follow that trend or this trend? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, so you're in the scream, you guys are, uh, I think you were doing shows with dangerous toys and, uh, you know, the story goes, it's in the dirt, you know, it's all written about how Nikki gave you a shout out in spin magazine. So you just tried to call the manager to say, thank you. And then they called you back right away. I mean, I'm assuming it was kind of like when you called me yesterday and you're like, Hey, this is John Karabi. I was like, what? Like when he says, yeah, hi, this was- is Nikki six. Like, you're like, what? Like it kind of shocks you. Right. Well, it was, it was funny because yes, I mean, it was literally like not even five minutes later. And so I answered, you know, my wife answered the phone and she kind of went, oh, oh, you here, you need to take this. And I'm like, no, I got to, 
because I was running late yeah. for a show. And I just got on the phone with them and I just started bullshitting. You know, I'm like, I, I it was Tommy and Nikki. Right. And I, I was, you know, chatting with them. I said, thank you for the plug and all the shit. And we chit chatted for a minute or two. And then Nikki just stopped me dead in my tracks. And he goes, all right, dude, whatever. Here's, here's why we're calling. And I got off that phone and I was like, what, 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 <laughs> what, what just happened? Yeah. Like, that's not what I called them for. Right. You know what I mean? And it, it was like synchronicity, like this weird timing that you just happened to yeah. call. They were actually trying to get a hold of you. Right. Is the story yeah. they were trying to figure out how to find you. And then you called them. Yeah. That's it crazy. was weird. Like apparently, apparently, you know, legend has it that they were on the other line with their manager going, Hey, we really like this guy in the screen. How do we That's get him crazy. to come down? And the manager's like, I can't call the record label and, and ask them if I can borrow their singer. You know, yeah. I, it's, it's illegal. I can't do it. And I just happened to call in on the oh. other line while they were talking to him about that. So the secretary took my number and she ran in and she's like, that was him. He's on the other line, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's and fucking crazy. Down and Tommy and Nikki got off the phone with him and called me right back. Yeah. So then you audition with them. And I thought this was weird that you, you guys had actually like basically written two songs, but you were not in the band yet. Is that common to like, is that part of the audition process typically to write songs with the band? Because like they could have still said no at that point after you'd written a misunderstood and hammered. Well, we didn't totally write them. Okay. But, I mean, we, we actually, uh, let me rephrase that. We actually started jamming um, on Hammered. Now, you got to remember, initially, my thing was just call them and say thank you. Yeah. I knew at this point, at some point, we, the Scream, was going to have to do another record. Motley Crue was one of the biggest bands on earth at the time. And... I guess maybe if you're thinking like little sneak my way in the door, I was thinking, well, maybe I can just write a song with Tommy, Nikki, Mick, whatever, or Nikki, mm -hmm. one of them. And, you know, put it on the next scream record, or I can have a co-write on their next record or whatever. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And that was my whole thing calling them. And then, so we, we, we did the whole thing. I ran through their material and then um, Mick was, he had a Les Paul, like this black Les Paul. And I said, uh, it was in a, like a guitar stand. And um, I said, oh, hey, can I check out your guitar? He goes, yeah, sure. No worries. And uh, he unplugged his guitar, put, plugged it into the one that I was holding. And I just started playing some shit, like some leads. And, and then everybody was like, oh, fuck, you play. And I go, yeah, I started out as a guitar player. Yeah. So they set up an amp and then we, then it was just like a fucking jam session. I mean, we were doing like honky tonk woman. We were doing Beatles tunes. We were doing, uh, we did, um, Helter Skelter, Jailhouse Rock, right? Yeah. We did all that shit earlier, but we were doing, uh, I started that riff. Boom, da, 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 da. Da, 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 a blues tune that Aerosmith had recovered called Reefer Headed Woman. And, we, and they knew we that one started, or you just jammed they, on it. Yeah, 
we were just jamming on it. And That's I was cool. singing and scatting. And then Mick and I were going back and forth with um, solos. So we did that. And then um, somehow I had this riff that I had tried in Angora. I had tried in The Scream and nothing really ever came of it. And I played it for Tommy and Nikki and Mick. And I started playing the riff. And Tommy just started playing along to it. And then I so I showed it to Nikki and Mick. And, and it was the opening riff to Hammered. Right. And we just kind of worked it out and just kind of had a loose little thing for it. And then I was just, I didn't have any lyrics or anything. So I was like, <laughs> you know. Okay. And um so we kind of had a rough map of the song and then we kind of hit a wall and um, then Nikki goes, Oh, Hey Mick show crap or John at the time. Um, show him that acoustic riff. So Mick had this acoustic guitar on the stand and he started playing just that beginning oh, part. Misunderstood. Misunderstood. Yeah. And Nikki had scribbled down some lyrics for, um, you know, little old man contemplates suicide, you know, blah, blah, blah. Was that all fiction or was that based on something like a movie? No, it, just, it was based. It's just basically based on people in their older stages of life that are kind of recapping what they've done with their life. And okay. did they amount to anything? Did life pass me by? Kind of a whatever. Beautiful song. I love it. One of my favorites. Yeah, and so they didn't really have like a melody for it. So I just started, I was like listening to it and I was looking at the lyrics that Nikki had written. <clears throat> and then I just started singing. Little man contemplate sign. You know, and it it worked. Yeah, I would say so. This is killer, Tommy, especially. This is killer. So we're dicking around for a little bit. And that's it. We just kind of fucked around with it a little bit. They recorded everything. Oh. And and then it was funny. Nikki's like, okay. So he took his bass off and he sat it down on the chair. And he must have signaled Tommy because then Tommy a minute later put his sticks down. He got up and he left the room. And then Mick put his guitar down and then he left the room and I'm just kind of sit, sitting in there with the, with the wives, guys. right? Oh no. Was it, with... No, the, the wives were gone. Okay, the wives were... I was just sitting there with some of the crew guys. And um, like 10 minutes later, they came back into the room and the way they had the room set up, it was like giant rectangular, massive room. And Tommy's drums were here and I was sitting on this couch and Nikki, so Tommy sat down on the drum riser. Nikki sat on one side of him. Mick sat on the other. And the way they started the, talking to me, it was like, well, okay, John. Um, yeah, we, you know, we went out to the bathroom and, you know, doesn't take a, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, you know, Welcome to the crew. <laughs> like they kind and of I, tricked you a little. Yeah. And I was like sitting on the couch and I'm smoking a cigarette and I'm, 
I'm looking at him. I go, wait, what? <laughs> They're like, welcome to the crew, dude. You're the new singer. And I was like, what? And it, it just, the whole thing was like, so fucking surreal. And then, they, like you know, it. there was all this, you know, politics and all this bullshit. They're like, you can't say anything. Sure. Yeah. And I'm like, awesome. Can I tell my wife? Yeah, like, right. Hey, yeah. Whatever. So, yeah. So, and, uh, yeah, there's it a, was, it was just weird. The whole thing was weird. It's crazy. But there's a couple instances in the dirt where they talk about how they kind of during the recording of that album, they fell off the wagon. You know, they're, they're the right before, like the first day they just uh, Nikki and Tommy go crazy. They call their old Coke dealer and get coked out. And then there's another story about like uh, you hanging out with Snake from Skid Row and Nikki and Tommy and getting hammered. And I mean, how many times did they fall off the wagon? Because I always thought they were kind of sober at that point. But no, they, I, you know, and, and and again, I don't like talking about anybody else's sobriety issues or whatever. But um, well, two of those, yeah, like I said, are in the book. So I mean, that's yeah. Not, they, yeah. They, I mean, they were trying. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, listen, man, when you do the shit that those guys did their whole fucking lives, you know, I mean, they were drinking and partying since they were 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, um, you know, at that point we were 40 year old men and, um, you know, they were, when I, the first day I walked in, they had a refrigerator in the room with them and it was just loaded with diet coke seven up and odul's non-alcoholic beer and and it just it just kind of graduated you know it was like one of those things where you go um and i've done it i've been i've done it with cigarettes where i'm like oh it's okay i've only, i haven't had a cigarette in 3 years i'm just going to have one and i'll be fine and then, you know, three days later, you're blowing a farm animal for a fucking cigarette. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, how did this happen? So, um, you know, it is what it is. But there, there, was, um, there was quite a few, there was quite a few setbacks when we were doing the album. Really? In, in Vancouver and in L.A. Oh, hmm. So this was like once a month, something like this would happen or like, you know, it just, you know, whenever, like, um, and again, it's that false, um, security. It's like, oh, okay. I haven't been drinking for, you know, three months. I'm not really going to drink whiskey anymore. I'm just going to have wine okay. you know, or whatever. I'm just going to have a glass of wine with dinner. And it's just like, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic, that's it. You know? And it's like, you know, so what was your, was, did you have different rules than them? Because you were not, uh, had gone through any sort of, uh, sobriety thing at, at that stage. No, but in your I, life. Did, I did, I did start. Um, it was, it was weird because I used to sit there, like, even when we were writing the writing process, like I'd go to Tommy's house and Tommy, um, it was weird. Like we were all working out and then I go to Tommy's house at like one o'clock in the afternoon, 12 o'clock, some shit. And I'd show up and Tommy would go, Hey crab, want a cocktail? And I, yeah, sure. Okay. And he would make vodka cranberry juice for himself and I would have a Jack and Coke or diet Coke, whatever. And, mm -hmm. but I would laugh like, 
it was unfathomable to me, like how much all like not and not just Motley, like even even Duff, like you know, there was I remember one rehearsal, Duff came to our rehearsal and he literally showed up, he had a brown bag and a cup, like the one you're drinking out of right now, like mm-hmm. this huge cup. And he sat at our rehearsal and he was literally, and, and I'm not talking a fifth, I'm talking a handle of vodka. So half gallon is that? Damn. You know, so he, he'd be sitting there watching us play and he'd pour vodka into this thing and then he'd reach into the bag and pull out a little cranberry juice and give it a little splash. <laughs> and then he'd sit there and he'd drink it. And I mean, he was with us for a couple of hours and in, in like no time, he, he had almost killed off that whole bottle of vodka. Like the, those jugs with the hand, the yes. handle. Yes. That's and crazy. I was sitting there like, Holy fuck. Like, how can he do that? Yeah. But then I joined Motley and I realized, <laughs> I realized that Motley was also very capable of doing the exact same thing. Now, when I say that, I'm just like, at no point, like when I, when Duff was done, he had a conversation with us. It was like, I'm talking to you right now. It was like, it didn't even, it wasn't even, it was like nothing like that. All that vodka he drank, it, it, it didn't do anything to him. His motor skills were the same. His talking was the same. And then he got into his vet and he started his car and he drove as straight as an arrow and he went back to his house. And I was like, holy shit. Tolerance. Yeah. So I used to sit there and watch like Tommy and uh, on occasion, Nikki and the amount of alcohol they would drink was just like, Holy shit. Or David Lee Roth, you know, I'd be like, fuck, how can they do this? But it's funny. So when I, when we were writing the record, um, I would have a couple of drinks with Tommy and, you know, three or four cups. I'd be like, Oh, you know, uh," you know, but by the time we did the writing process and then we did the actual album, which was another year on top of that. Right. So it was like two years. And then two and a half years in, we went on tour. By the time we did that, I was probably drinking as much as Tommy was. Like Tommy and I traveled together on the same bus. Mm. And our rider every day, it was ridiculous. It was like just massive amounts of vodka and jack jack daniels and he got a carton of cigarettes and i got a carton of cigarettes we had all the fixings and it was weird like by the end of the tour i was literally going through a handle of jack daniels like like every day and a half day day and a half and i was you know and then i had i had a little episode once they once they let me go um, I just had this, I had a stomach issue and I was just like, Fuck, what, like, what is wrong? And, and then it was one of those things not to be gross, but it was like, fuck, I didn't know if I had to throw up or go to the bathroom. So I literally sat down and I just started puking in my tub while I was going to the bathroom 
and blood was coming out of both ends of me. So I just, I went to a doctor and he goes, you need to chill out on the booze. So at that point, I didn't, I didn't fucking, I didn't touch a drop of alcohol. Like I just went, okay, I, I don't wow. want to go through that again. So I just kind of, I just kind of became a Earl Grey teetotaler for like the next seven or eight years. Damn. And then I started lightening up a little bit. I'd have an occasional Guinness okay. or an, a Guinness in a shot. And, and then, but that was it. I, I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to get into that. Is that where you are right now? You just have the occasional drink and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I I'll just, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> listen, <clears throat> my wife and I will go out on a Sunday and watch a football game and, you know, we'll have to take an Uber home. So there's, I'll have a moment where sure. I get a hair up my ass and I'll just have way too much to drink, but we'll take an Uber home and then I'll sleep and then go get my car the next day, whatever. Hmm. But for the most part, I, I'm just not into it. I'm yeah. like, Ugh, you know, right. Well, so, okay. So anyway, wow, that's, that's really fascinating stuff. But back to that, that Motley record. Um, God, some of these questions, I feel like I've been waiting since 1994 to ask you, but like the song love shine, I love that song when I was a kid and I always, I always wondered like, did you guys ever try to market that as like a pop single or like adult contemporary? Cause I know a lot of the, that no? wasn't even, that wasn't even contention for a single. I love that song. I thought that would have been, cause I, I mean, I listened to songs on the radio and I was like, I could hear this. I could see this being popular on like adult contemporary or something, maybe not on headbangers ball, but. And it was weird. It was the same tuning that Mick used for misunderstood. Yeah. It sounds similar. And he had it and he just started playing around with those notes in the beginning of the song. Okay. And, and then I was like, Oh, that's really cool. And I literally just walked up to the microphone and started going again, no lyrics, but like, and it was like it was kind of uh it's a very cool tuning it's yeah. like an open d or dad gad tuning okay uh, and and it was like kind of um you know us trying to show not it, and it wasn't even a it, it wasn't even a planned effort it was just really something that happened, but we were sitting there. I remember after we started jamming it, we were sitting there going, Oh man, this is cool. This is kind of a little reminiscent of something Zeppelin would do. Right. Wasn't that the theory with the whole album that was going to be eclectic, like a physical graffiti. We wanted to just uh, not, not, I can't say we, cause I was never a part of the band prior to that, but the thing that they were so excited about was that we were going to try and really be like way more musical and show people, even when we went out and toured, like there wasn't a lot of emphasis on pyro and different shit like that. Like um, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on what we were going to wear on stage. Hmm. They just wanted to, if and if you look at the back at the back of the record, the actual album and even the CD, the word "listen" is on the back of the record. So it was like, you know what? Um, we've always been a band that was a byproduct of our lives, like you know the crazy, over mm -hmm. the top the girls, the drugs, 
the this, the that. We started jamming shit and putting shit together. And we were like, wow, this music is really different. It's really kind of grown up. It's really eclectic. So those guys, more than I, more than me, they were just like, we just want you to listen to what we're doing musically. And we want you to see that we can be more than our, our, uh, our, uh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Image, history, reputation, reputation and history. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. We can can be more than that. So then what was it? Sorry. They were stoked about it. That's why Nikki, Nikki insisted. He's like, I want the word listen on the, on this record somewhere. Just put it on the back. Okay. Don't look at any. That's why the album cover is really kind of simple. Not it's, it's simple. That's why we didn't dress up. It was like, that's why Tommy didn't do any kind of crazy circular roller coaster. Like, it's just like, no, watch me play. Mm-hmm. So and then, so with the song, yeah, with the song yeah. 10,000 miles, everyone, I remember when I was a kid reading about that and I didn't get to hear it until like 15 years later, but everyone said that it would, uh, it would be such a big hit. And then that you guys took it off the record. And so I always just, I was always curious about that. Like, what was the decision with that taking 10,000 miles off the record? I never understood. Cause I thought, Oh, if that's going to be such a big hit, why did they, it's like, they didn't want to be mainstream at the time or something. No, the band never said this is going to be a big hit. No, the other people did. Right. And they said, well, we don't want that then. The right? fans, like the fans are the ones that, you know, they, they write and they go, why didn't you guys do 10,000 miles or, you know, or even now, like when I was doing those live 94 shows, right. The fans are like, God, I hope you do, um, you know, uh, 10,000 miles. But what we did do, we sat down with Bob and we just kind of listened to everything in context. And that song, regardless of whether it's good, bad, indifferent, it was just different than everything else that we had done on the record. It was mm. just kind of a simple ballad. It had a little bit of a blues twinge to it, but it was, it was, um, it was kind of more in the lines of like a without you or whatever. It was just kind of like this cool bluesy, typical ballad. So we kind of sat down with everybody, Bob rock included and said, you know, let's hold this one. Hmm. Um, and then we had, we had come up with the concept of putting a bounce back card in the album so that people could order quaternary. Yeah. I love that. Um, so we said, you know what? We're it's not like it's going to go to waste. Let's just hold it off the record. And now mind you, we did the same thing with Baby Kills. And so we took those songs and we just put them on the quaternary record. Well, so fans still got the option to hear. Yeah, them. but I don't think 10,000 Miles was on the quaternary record. It was just Baby Kills from what I remember. No, it's, it's well, there's two versions. Oh, there's two versions of the quaternary. Two versions of quaternary. Quaternary. I there's never knew one, that. There's one with my solo song Tommy solo song, Nikki solo song, Mick solo song, and Baby Kills. Yeah, that's the one I had. And then there was another version that came out. It was only available in, and it was the Japanese or the European <sighs> record label that Every did time, it. Yeah. And they have all five of those songs okay. 
Then they have another song called uh, 10,000 Miles. Um, there was a demo of a song that we did called Hypnotized. Yeah, there's that song. Then there was a remix of Hooligans Holiday and another song called Living in the Know. Okay. So there were nine songs on that version of Quarter and Error. Uh, yeah, I didn't hear 10,000 Miles till like, I think it was the one of the box sets you guys did or something. I think it came out on that one or something. I don't know. Well, when you say they, I had nothing to do right. with it. <laughs> okay, yeah, totally. When but I, so when I left, when I left, anything and everything that says Motley Crue is controlled by Motley Crue. Sure, sure. But oh. so when you were still in the band in that interview on MTV, that was I, that was like a famous interview. I remember watching that was a kid when I was a kid, my jaw dropped. But like it's weird because they're talking all this shit about Vince in the interview, and of course they talk shit about him in the book too, like in the chapters next to each other. And, and that's when they're back together. Was there a lot of Vince shit talking when you were in the band? Cause I would think that would be kind of awkward as someone like, it's almost like you break up with a, uh, you get a new girlfriend and she's talking about her ex-boyfriend. Cause like, you know, they just broke up. It was like, or was that something that was just, it was occasional jokes here and there. I mean, wasn't there something about like Tommy put Vince's picture on the toilet so you could pee on it and stuff. I mean, that must've been really weird I for you. I don't know about that to okay. be honest with you, but there was a lot of, there was a, quite a bit of Vince bashing at rehearsals and, 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 um, you know, they, they, um, it, it, and when I say Vince bashing, it was just, you know, like one of the reasons why we took a year <coughs> to record the album or to write the album, they just wanted to take time to make sure that, they called LSD lead singer disease mm. um, that I wasn't going to turn into an asshole. Um, so we would do shit, but we would do shit together. Like um, I remember one time right after the guys bought me a Harley, um, we used to take it to this place that serviced, it was in like thousand Oaks and, um, we would take it to this little motorcycle shop that Nikki and Tommy turned me on to. And um, a lot of hell's angels guys and stuff would go to this guy. And we wound up doing this charity run up to uh, Yosemite um, national forest it was literally like five or six hours up. We hung out for the weekend, five or six hours back and we would do shit like that. And they just wanted to see how I interacted with people, um, how I treated people, um, you know, and they're, you know, they used to just tell me these horror stories about Vince's behavior. Now, as a side note, as, and as an asterisk, um, I've met Vince. Yeah. You guys Vince, sang together. Yeah. He's been nothing but cool to me. Yeah. Um, he's never been an asshole to me ever. So I really have nothing to base this on. This was just what they were telling me. Right. Um, you know, so I, I just, um, you know, it was just them telling me like these horror stories. Tommy would go, uh, yeah, dude, it was crazy, man. You know, back when we were touring, you know, we were taking buses like Vince had pulled chicks out of the audience and then he'd go into the back lounge and he'd lock the door. So nobody could use the lounge, but him. 
and he would just be back there fucking chicks. And we all had chicks that we wanted to fuck. And like, you know, we couldn't, you know, and there, there was no like band consideration there. He didn't okay. you know, care. And, but that's what they told me. Sounds like a good problem to have is not enough, too many chicks to fuck and not enough space to fuck them. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, and whatever. So we used to just, I would, you know, again, I'd never met the guy up at, to that point. Mm -hmm. So I, it's like, I can't really, I don't have a bad story to say about the guy. I would just literally sit there and they would just tell me these stories and I'd be like, holy shit, seriously. Mm. Well, well, fuck. He said that, or he did that, or he punched somebody or, and they're like, yeah, dude, you know, whatever. Hmm. So I was just like, oh, okay, great. Awesome. <laughs> like, fuck, whatever. So yeah. um, they took a year to make sure that I wouldn't turn into, you know, in their words, another problem or another, another, another ass. So do you, do you think you guys whatever. took too long? to come out with that record. Cause you said, I mean, I think it took 14 months to make it and $2 million. And I mean, do you ever wonder what, I mean, cause the, the record is a masterpiece. Don't get me wrong, but I, do you ever wonder what, if maybe you had finished it sooner and maybe not produced it as heavily or, you know, do you think that would have made a difference? Cause it seemed like time was a factor at that point. Cause you know, it's like bands from the eighties were struggling as we got deeper and deeper into the nineties. Like if that record came out in 92 or 93, would that have even made a difference? Well, I mean, listen, for me, you got to understand, I was living in a one bedroom apartment. Um, I had recorded an album with The Scream at that point. Mm -hmm. I had done some recording with Angora, um, you know, but I get their I get their thinking like they wanted to take their time writing the album. I get that. Mm -hmm. um, but they, you know, at the same time, I was kind of sitting there like, fuck, like. I mean, we did the Scream album, but we did the same thing. Like at that point, we were unsigned. So we had our whole lives to get up to that moment of, sure. of a record deal. But we did the Scream album in uh, four and a half weeks, five weeks. Yeah. Um, and that was that was even working with Eddie's schedule and getting, you know, whatever. So we did the record in four weeks. Then we do this Motley record and we write for a year. Then we've recorded for a year. So it was two years. And then we held the record. Like, even though uh, the single came out, like, a, you know, months later, the first single, we didn't, I think the single came out in March mm -hmm. of 94. And then we didn't go on tour until June or July. Um, June, mm -hmm. I think. Okay. Um you know, but it, I, like I was sitting there like, eh, like I was ready to go. Yeah. And to be honest with you, the Motley record is the longest record I've ever made in my life. Like, For sure. I did, mm. The Scream was four and a half weeks. The Union record was uh, literally, you know, both Union records. We did it in like a month. Um that's more common, like about a month or two or three is usually more common for. Yeah, and know. I mean, all the, um, I can't think of any, like my, my Dead Daisies record, and, yeah. my unplugged record, I wrote the songs kind of, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then we literally, I recorded that unplugged record at my house in 10 days. Hmm. Whole record. Yeah. And then I did the Live 94 was obviously one show. Right. 
Um, all the Dead Daisies records were never longer than a month. Um, so that was the that was the odd odd man out. The so, odd yeah. out. so then what about the second record with crew that I know you had a part in? Um, but there was I I heard this two songs were written with Bob Rock. Uh, one called "The Year I Lived in a Day" and "La Dolce Vita." Did those no, transfer into no. something else? No. Bob never. Now he may have been involved after I left, but all the songs were written by me, Tommy, Nikki, and Mick. Are those two songs? Am I totally have that wrong? Then have you heard those titles? No, there was a song called "The Year I Lived a Day." Yeah. Um, and then "La Dolce Vita." was just means the sweet life. And we, we wrote that one that was just jamming. And, um, again, it was just, uh, like La Dolce Vita was, it was, it was an odd tune. It was, it was, if this even remotely makes any sense to anybody, it was no quarter by Led Zeppelin meets uh, you know, something from Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd meets Motley Crue. If that okay. can even, it was just like this literally seven minute song that huh. had all these uh, volume change, like, it, you know, it was really mellow and then it would get really heavy and then it would come back down again and then it would go to the left and it would, you know, guitar riffing and then come back down again and then back up and it was like this really long epic. So what happened to those songs? Uh, when I left, I turned in all my tapes and everything okay. to the band and I, and that was that. Okay. So then, um, yeah. So then obviously they get back, they get Vince back and then, uh, you leave. So I, I thought this was interesting. You said two things that you learned a valuable lesson about your time with the crew. One was that as tight as you thought you were with the Motley guys, it is a business. So learn to, you learn to appreciate friends and family, but this is also something that I reread last night in the book that you said your biggest regret was that you wish you had fought back and stood up for yourself. That's really interesting to me. I, well, you know, it, I, like a lot of things that we did, I would just sit there and go, you know, why, why are we doing this? This doesn't, you know, that's just makes no sense to me. Um, or, Hey, I got this idea. Um, what about this? And, and, and I would get, you know, whatever shot down or just, you know, and so I would say what I had to say, but I wouldn't really push it because if they push back on whatever I said, I would just automatically go, well, okay. I mean, they've sold a gazillion records at this point. Yeah. They know. I, I, at that point, I had never, you know, I mean, what I did two fucking records, the, you know, the first Motley record and the, the screen album. So what did I know? Um, so there was things where, and I think I said it in the dirt, like when we were doing that interview, for example, with, MTV, you know, that just the down talking of, of Vince, I, I didn't agree with it because I kind of felt like it, you're drawing a line in the sand and you're making the fans choose. You're either on our side or his side. And I didn't agree with it, but I was just like, uh, you know, obviously these guys have been so fucking over the top 
it's really nothing for them to throw Motley or throw MTV out of the fucking rehearsal room. <laughs> they obviously know what they yeah. do. They've been doing this for at that point. It was um, you know fifteen years, right? Decade of decadence. It was like I think it was uh, a four or five year lapse between decade of decadence and the first record I did with them. Yeah. No, that's funny that you mentioned that having to choose because I I was a fan of both. I I mean, I loved Motley Crue, but then when Vince Neil came out, I was like, oh, cool. I get a Vince Neil solo record and I get the Motley Crue. I liked it both. I don't know. Maybe I was the the oddball. But it was weird because I remember seeing shit even even with Van Halen. You know, there were some things on MTV of, you know, like, you know, it's like Eddie, God rest his soul, uh, you know him and Mike Anthony in a bathroom next to a urinal and one of them flushed, they flushed a urinal and they said, Hey, what does this sound remind you of? And they flushed a urinal and one of them said, Oh, it's David Lee Roth singing. Um, So they were, you know, and I just, I, I, I just, I'm kind of an old school. Like if you've got nothing good to say, just don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut. Just it sounds whatever. like that stuff is really common. Like you also experienced that when you were in Rat, and like that's that's kind of cool that you took that job and you're like, I just want like to be like, uh, you don't want to be in charge of the record sales and have to worry about all that stuff, and you just got to play guitar, but you you had to deal with that. You had to kind of witness a lot of the the bickering and stuff in that band where you would you said something like where you you just would go and get a sandwich and they you'd come back and they'd still be bickering. Yeah, that was. Um... You know, it's funny, like, I, I I understand, I understand the battles within a band. Yeah. Uh, and it, it happens. It, listen, you know, we're, we're married. When you're in any relationship, you're going to say left. And sometimes your partner, whether it's in a band or marriage or business, whatever, they're going to go, no, we need to go right. And then you got to sort it out Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. find that gray area. And I truly believe in that in just in life, you know what I mean? Um, And it was just weird. I, I just, I just felt like I should have, I should have been a little more assertive and said, guys, seriously, stop with the bullshit with Vince. Um, you know, and whatever it, it, you know, that's water under the bridge. You can't really do it. But the, the, the things with, it was funny to me, like Motley, even when they got back together are still kind of dysfunctional. When you look at all the shit that's happened between Tommy and Vince, since they all got back together and then Tommy left and, you know, whatever. So there's a, a, there's an element of dysfunction that I don't understand. Mm. Um, if it's working and the fans are enjoying it, then fucking make it work. You know what I mean? Whatever. Mm. And that was the thing. Like I, I can truly sit here and say as quirky as all the guys in rat are, they've all got a little nuance to them that I just used to sit there and sort out. You know, and it's like, okay, when I'm talking to Bobby, 
I got to talk to Bobby this way. And when I talk to Warren, I got to talk to Warren this way. And then when I talk to Steven, I got to talk to Steven this way. And you sort it out. Hmm. And I'm still able to get my point across. But, you know, like it, it was so. The element of dysfunction with those three guys when I was in the band, Robbie Crane and I would just sit there and just go, fuck, <laughs> like, are you fucking kidding me? And they would just sit there and bicker amongst the three about, you know, and it's just this, it's a silly thing, but, you know, in their own way, I feel like all three of those guys are just walking around with their dick out going, mine's bigger. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm, I'm the reason why everybody comes to see this band. And it's like, dude, they're coming to see the band, not Steven, not Warren, not, Bobby, it's all of you guys together. It's rat. It's not, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And that was the thing I just, I just was like, oh, fuck. And, and oddly enough, when they got offered their record deal with uh, Roadrunner, that last record they did, yeah. you know, I, w- I was in the band. We got the record deal the night I, you know. And isn't that like, when you quit? You said, fuck this. I'm not going to. I go, I'm out. I'll talk to you guys <laughs> later. You and, and it's funny. It's not truth. It's common knowledge. I said it right to them. I go, you guys can't get the real fucking rehearsal without battling. I'm not going to. I forget where they did it. North yeah. Carolina, South Carolina, whatever. Fucking no way I'm going to go live in a house with you guys and write and record a record. Not going to do it. So I left. Yeah. I, I didn't want any part of the drama, man. I'm like, see you guys. It's been real. Thank that's, you. That's crazy. Wow. So what was it like? Um, you were in this, this cover band. I didn't know this. This I learned this yesterday. You were in some cover band with Jerry Cantrell and uh, also Billy Duffy from the cult. Um, so two questions. Was Jerry a fan of the Motley 94 record? And then were there, did you guys ever get to do any originals? Did you ever get to write with Jerry Cantrell? Cause I, I assume playing with him was amazing, but writing with him would be amazing too. No, we never really got that far. It was mm. literally like uh what's that? Kings of chaos. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. You know, whatever, all those bands. And they just wanted to do something. Jerry had a little hiatus. Billy was had a hiatus and I ran into Billy and, and he talked to me about it and I'm like, Oh, Hey dude, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure. I'll come down and, I think I went in and I sang, um, they, you know, they picked two cover songs for me to sing. It was, uh, back in black and draw the line. Hmm. So I went in, I sang the two songs. Jerry goes, yep, that'll work. You know, I (laughs) never, I had met Jerry, not that he would remember. We met once at A&M, but this is when Jerry was partying a little bit and we were partying and, and he listened to the, new shit that we were doing and he's like oh fuck man this is killer you know whatever and then he left Mm. and then i hadn't seen him until that day you know whatever but we just kind of got together and we threw we threw some allison chains together we did some cult um i think we did a song or two of my motley record and then we just did a bunch of covers that's really and then yeah weren't you in another cover band called star fuckers um, that's still kind of an ongoing every now and then kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You got that to was, play, uh, Eddie Van Halen's backyard and jam with yeah. him. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And it's funny because I might, you know, I still talk to Eric Dover quite a bit and there was like, that was like this little rotating cast of whoever was in town on Thursday nights 
we would just meet up at the cat club. And I mean, the band never even rehearsed. I mean, it was like, Hey, do you guys know, uh, can't always get what you want by the stones. Yeah. Fuck. You know, we just <laughs> wow. literally we'd be drinking and smoking cigarettes and fucking just jamming. And, and we did two sets and we did everything from Zeppelin to queen to the sweet, um, whatever, whatever somebody knew. And, That's um, fun. but it was weird. Like these random people would show up and jam with us. Um, Brian May came down one time and sat in. We did a couple Queen tunes. Um, wow. We did um, Slash came in. We did some Guns N' Roses. Uh, Eric Singer would come in. Brian Tishy would play. Um, we had Billy Idol there one night. Um, Skunk Baxter, Lemmy. Oh, that sounds um, amazing. Like, so it was just like this rotating cast of fucking goofballs. That sounds fun. And it was just... You know, I think we, we it's it was funny. Slim Jim Phantom from the Stray Cats, um, he owned the bar. Oh, so and it was a little place. And he'd go, Man, I can't afford to pay you guys that much, you know. So we all said, you know, fuck it, Jim, just give us a hundred bucks and an open bar tap. And I think we we probably drank a fucking thousand <laughs> thousand dollars worth of shit every Thursday night. Whoops. And it was it was like a party. That's fun. But it wound up being this really cool thing where, I mean, you couldn't get into that place on Thursday nights. There was literally three, 400 people in that club. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Just packed in and, you know, just fucking off and doing Beatles tunes and whatever. Crazy. And, um, it was fun, man. Yeah, that's it was, fun. It was great. So tell and me we'll about, still, sorry, what? Well, still on occasion, like Stefan or, Eric Dover, or Troy Patrick, somebody will call and go, Hey man, I got a, got a gig for the star fuckers. If you guys want to do it. Oh, cool. And they'll just call around and we'll go play a casino or something like that. That's we fun. still do them once in a while, but that's awesome. Not on a regular basis. Yeah. So tell me about your new biography. Is it called horseshoes and hand grenades? Yes, sir. Okay. And it says, you said the book's going to piss off a few of your ex-wives. Oh, it's, I was just, whatever. I'm just being truthful. I'm sure I'm going to step on a few toes. I don't, that's not my goal or yeah. my intention, but I'm just being honest. I'm just telling stories and, um, you know, I get along with all of my exes except for one. I uh, haven't seen her since we split up. I don't want to see her. Don't want to talk with her. She's not a very, she wasn't, maybe she is now. She's not a very good human being, but, um, I, I, I'm just telling the truth. Um, so my goal isn't to piss off anybody. Um, it's really just about a lot of people ask me all the time, like, why have you been in so many bands or why did you do this? Or why did you do that? Or why, you know, and it's like, you know, it's just the deck of cards that I was handed. Mm -hmm. Um, like we were saying earlier, when I was in the scream, who fucking knew that I was going to get that phone call from Motley Right. Dude, yeah. in a million years you, you, that you don't see that coming. And obviously, um, you know, the way they talked about Vince when I was in the band in a million years, I never thought I'd be out of the band. 
And you just kind of, you just kind of keep trudging forward. You keep moving and doing the best that you can do. And so I think mainly the story that if anybody gets anything out of my book, any kind of life lesson, it's more about, you know, you'll have setbacks, but you just move forward, man. You just, you just have perseverance. You just keep plugging away. And, and, and at some point, you know, shit's going to happen for you. Well, yeah. And I thought this was really cool that, um, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but I heard you talking about with your dad that, uh, growing up, your dad was not really, he didn't buy into the whole music thing, but this sounded like something out of a movie. But then when he passed away, they found a collection of like every article of it and every magazine that you'd ever been in. Like he kept this in a locker. Like why didn't he, why did he hide that pride or did he, did he tell you at some point? No, in the end, in the end, he, he, he had expressed verbally um, different things to me. Um, you know, so uh, I just didn't realize the extent of how uh, proud he was. Okay. You know what I mean, yeah, because yeah, he said something like he pointed out that you had taken care of two kids, your ex-wives, your mom when she had cancer, and you kept doing the music. And then he said something like, "You're a better man than I've ever been," or something. That's crazy. Yeah, that was a that was a moment where I had to get off the phone with him because I, I again I didn't expect that um, that conversation, and it was just you know one of those things where. I think everybody goes through it. I don't know how old you are, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 62 this year. Yeah. And, you know, it was one of those moments where I think I was like 48, 49, 50 years old. And you start taking stock of your life. And I was looking at the wrong things. I was like, I don't own anything. Like, what have I done? I haven't amassed this huge fortune and, you know, and my dad being a dad, he's like, wait a minute, you've got two beautiful kids, beautiful girlfriend. You've got a great house, like slow down, dude. Like, and, and then he had this long talk with me that everybody will read about in the book. Mm. But, um, it, it was just, it was one of those moments where I kind of went, you know what? I'm looking at life the wrong way. And it kind of made it, it clarified some things for me. Yeah, for sure. That's crazy. So your dad was an artist. Do you have any of his art or are you going to show some of that in the book? Um, I think my sisters do. Okay. Um, and he wasn't like, it, it was, it was the weirdest thing. Like he didn't paint like landscapes or different things like that, but he just, he was awesome. I mean, he did do, let let me rephrase it. He did do some landscapes, but his favorite artist was Walt Disney. Mm. Like the, Hmm. you know, like that art. I think he had every Disney movie ever. And so he would do these um, lawn ornaments Hmm. and he would make them himself. Like, so he would draw like, he had a little pond in his yard that he had made himself. He did this pond and he put, um, you know, like whatever it's the Nick Karabi version of koi fish. He had goldfish <laughs> in the pond, and but he he literally he made these things. They were like four or five feet high, 
and he would paint them on wood and he would do like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and he would put them around the pond and he had Bambi and he and he literally he painted them and then he cut the figurines out with the jigsaw and then he, wow. ama- he attached them to a stake and he put them in the ground. And I pulled up one day like I mean, again, I was like 50, 55 years old and he was 70, 75, whatever. And I'm looking at the shit. I go, oh, th- those are cool. Where'd you get them? He goes, I made them. And I was like, what do you mean you made them? Yeah, I painted them and I made them myself. And I just sat there and I went, holy shit. Like I had no fucking idea that you could even draw. <laughs> like, so he had painted them yeah. and then he kind of outlined them with one of those old school wood burning kits. Okay. So the black lines was actually burned. You know, he burned the wood and then he, and then he cut them out and he attached them to a stake and put them in the ground. And I'm yeah. like, fuck, these are brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, and it's just weird. Like, you don't know your dad that like, you know what I mean? Who knew? Like yeah. my dad was just some guy that wore suit and tie and went to work and did accounting for all these businesses. And he was a bit of a, you know, nuts and bolts, Roman Catholic, you know, work hard, save your money, you know, kind of a deal. And yeah. And I found out he had this whole other side to him. Well, no. And I think way, that's way, way, way later in life. Yeah. So. And that's cool that with your son, I, I didn't know this either. I know, I know you playing a band with him, but I didn't know the story of like how that came to be. Like he kind of came to you because he was having some issues with drugs and then he, you guys had this heart to heart. And then it was his idea. He said, dad, I want to play in a band with you. Like, that's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. And we did it for a bit. And, um, unfortunately, fortunately, I got the dead daisies gig. Yeah. And it kind of put everything that we were doing a little bit to a halt. So he's been out doing his own thing. He played with, uh, um, he was out with a band, uh, tantric for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, now he's playing with a band called rehab, uh, out of Atlanta. Um, and he's just, you know, he's, he likes playing my stuff, but it's not really, he's more into like stuff. Like I think one of his favorite bands is seven dust. Oh, okay. Um, so he's more of a, like Morgan Rose is God to him. Mm. Um, so he wants to do something more in the lines of like that. Okay. I mean? Does he, Just is he going to play on your solo record or who, who's, who's on uh plays on your solo record? That's um, coming up, right? Well, right now. I don't know if you can see this or not, but I've got like this whole little studio thing. Yeah. Going yeah. Um, so the way I've been doing it now because of the COVID shit, I've been literally recording everything here at my house and I'll do like MIDI drums on this keyboard. Um, and then I've been sending stuff to Marty. Um, after I get it finished, I send it to Marty. Marty Fredrickson. Yeah. Yeah. He's been tweaking everything. And if he thinks the drums are good, he'll leave them. And if he thinks that they could be better or maybe a little looser or a different, maybe a altogether different beat, then he's been having his son is also a drummer. Hmm. His son has played on a couple of tracks of mine, but I've got a new track that I'm working on right now. And I, I just called in and I sent him the track to like, kind of get a vibe for. And then I want to go into uh, my buddy, DA Carcos who played on my acoustic record. 
he's got a home studio with a, a real drum set in it. So I want to have uh, my bass player, Topher and Ian come in and lay down real drums and a uh, better bass than what I did. Okay. So, Do you have any song? I remember when I was in metal edge reading Motley Crue 94 song titles and being like, Oh, that sounds so cool. Is there any song titles for the solo record? Yep. I have a, um, a song called Casi Bella, which is Italian for so beautiful. Oh. Um, I have a song called love that'll never be. Um, there's one called Laurel. Um, there's another one called your own worst enemy. Um, so I, I've got, I've got a bunch of ideas. I've got another one called moonshine symphony. I um, like that. Yeah. It's, it's so, uh, you it's know, all seventies, right? Seventies, like kind of, uh, yes. cause you said much. like your theory was, well, fuck it. If, uh, you know, if people aren't going to buy records, I can make whatever I want. Pretty much. I mean, at this point, I listen. I've got a studio here. Yeah. And I wish I could play you the stuff. It's it's not going to translate over the microphone, but yeah. Um, it's it's crazy because I think honestly, it's some of the best music that I've ever written and the best lyrics I've ever written. Um, and. I'm kind of just doing it at my own pace. So mm. I've, I'm setting myself up now um, a website. Um, I'm getting digital distribution and I'm basically going to, I mean, I, I'm going to eventually have CDs and a vinyl to sell. Okay. But what I want to do is I want to put out a song with a video. And then let it sit for a little bit. People can download it if they choose. Watch the video on YouTube. And then put out another song with a video. And then put out another song yeah. and a video. That seems to be the way everyone's doing it now. That's all about the yeah, singles. And then, and then I'll just do at the end when I get, you know, nine, ten songs. I'll do a CD and, a, and vinyl. I'll put it on Amazon or on my website. And I'll sell them at my shows. And maybe I'll put a bonus track on the the CD and the vinyl that nobody's ever heard before, whatever. But, you know, I, it's just I, like nobody's selling any records anymore. Yeah. Everything is downloads and streaming. And so fuck it. Like, why bother? Yeah. You know what I mean? Well I'm not ever a guy like me. Um, short of me writing, uh, you, you know, I, I, I think at this point, if I had an album full of Bohemian Rhapsodies and Hey Jude's, I still, it's going to be very, my chances of getting on mainstream radio are slim to none. But that doesn't even really mean anything anymore. I feel like it's all about digital. And then if you can get on these playlists, that's the new thing is getting on Spotify play. If you're on, you know, John, Bob, the, whatever the popular playlist is, if you get on that playlist, then you get a bunch of downloads and then you're, and that's all that matters. So yeah, the radio doesn't even mean anything anymore. I don't think it, it really doesn't. And, and then obviously there's, you know, MTV dropped the M like 20 right. years yeah. ago. So it's like YouTube now. So if I can go out and I actually just have a buddy of mine, he's done a couple documentaries and, and I asked him, I said, um, what program do you use to, to do like a video? If I wanted to do like a three, four, five minute video, what would I use? So he's 
He's going to help me with my first couple of videos. This guy named awesome. Ron Coons here in Nashville. Okay. And um, he's going to help me with my first couple of videos and show me how to do this. And then at that point, I just want to do my own videos as well. Nice. You know what I mean? Whatever. So, so yeah, we'll wait, I was going to ask you about this too. I didn't know this. And I, I, I got You got to clear this up. So you, there was a rumor that your name was kicked around to take over for Steven Tyler in Aerosmith, or they were going to change the name or something. What was the story? Like, I, I don't know. A buddy of mine was working with um, the camp at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, that was a light bulb moment I had. Um, and he basically called me. He goes, oh, hey, by the way, just giving you a heads up. Um, you know, you may get a call from this management company, blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay. Um, he goes, yes, yeah, Steven's out doing um, – American Idol and the rest of the band is kind of pissed about it. So they're, they're talking about getting a new singer. Um, and I know your name's on the list. And I was, I was like, no, you need to take my name off the fucking list. Like they can't. And I was like, dude, they can't be Aerosmith without Steven Tyler. Like, no, and no. then, yeah. And then now no. you're like, this is how Motley went, fans. <laughs> oh, that's how all the Motley fans felt. You know what I mean? So it was, it is, whatever. That's kind of funny. Yeah. That's crazy. Do you put those stories in, uh, about the, your near death experiences in your book? Uh, explain near death. So there was like some, some guy tried to rob you like right after you joined Motley and he put a gun and he put a gun up to your face and you, and you put your mouth on the gun and you said, shoot me or something. Dude, I, you're freaking me out. Like, (laughs) it's like, you know, I told somebody that story in like Iowa in 1964 and you somehow found it. I don't know. Um, No, you know that, that I, I don't even think that story's in the book, but I was at a place called the FM station. Yeah. And it's not in existence anymore. And a friend of mine, uh, it was actually the drummer in Angora, his girlfriend at the time, we were all out at this bar, like just watching. We weren't even playing. We were watching somebody else. And she had to leave and go home. And she realized she locked her keys in the car and I walked out to the car, you know, tried, I borrowed a hanger from the coat check girl and undid the hanger and I put a little loop on it. And so I'm sitting there and I'm doing this thing. And this guy comes up to me and he goes, stop. Like he basically was telling me, like, I'm I'm like, I'm just breaking into the car for a friend. And he was kind of getting a little aggressive with me. And my wife at the time was on the other side of the car. I was trying to get into the driver's door. And he goes, stop breaking into the car. And, you know, da, 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 da. And so I said to my wife, I said, I said, Val, go in and get Gina and tell her to come out and explain to this guy what I'm doing. He basically made me think that he was um parking lot security guy Mm -hmm. so as my wife started walking away he said um oh and i had to show him my id and everything Mm -hmm. right and i put my wallet back in and so as my wife is walking away he goes 
hey, bitch, I didn't tell you to fucking move. And then I got pissed. I'm like, okay, that's my wife. Nobody calls my wife bitch but me. Do you know what I mean? Like, you need to. So I turned at him. I said, where's your fucking ID? I want to see your fucking ID that says, you know, whatever gives you the right to talk to my wife that way. And he pulled a gun out and he stuck it in my face. And I literally, everything went in this like total slow motion. And I went, okay. At that point, I've got a gun like literally in my face. So I went, all right. I didn't, I had no idea. And I don't even know why I did it, but I literally just went, you know what? I, I, I grabbed the, I, the barrel <laughs> so was crazy. right in my face and I, I literally put the barrel in my mouth and I go, pull the fucking trigger. I don't care. And I put the fucking thing. And the guy just sat there with that look on my, that's on crazy. His face yeah. You have right now. <laughs> and, and he just, he walked away. It worked. But the problem is I went back into the club and I said, you need to tell your fucking security guard to chill out. And they go, we don't have a security guard. Okay. <laughs> It was just some random dude. Ooh, that's not good. I was like, holy shit. Then I got fucking pissed and I got in my car and I started looking for him. I swear to God, I was going to run him over. Oh my God. I was like, so whatever. But, wow. um, it, you know, I, I, I have no idea why I do half the shit I do, but <laughs> it was just weird. And, you know, I think I said something smart ass to him. Like I literally put the gun in my mouth and I said, See that that woman you call bitch? That's my wife. And I said something like, "You'd be doing me a favor. Go on, shoot." And I put the gun in my God, mouth. That's crazy. And he, he he just sat there like, "Okay, dude, you're out of your fucking mind." Um, and he put the gun away and he left. And yeah. then I went back to Jack in the car. You called his bluff, basically. What you called his bluff? It sounds like he and, probably again, wasn't really going to shoot you. I have no fucking idea. Like everything just went into slow motion. And I was like, I just have to let this, I, I don't even know. I, it was like, a, I, I was, I'm tr- trust me. I was shitting myself, but I'm like, I have to let this motherfucker know that I don't give a fuck. That's awesome. So I did that and he walked away and I'm like, you'd be doing me a favor. So that, Shoot. That's crazy. I can't wait to read the book then. Cause if that didn't make the cut, I can't wait to see what's in the book. Well, to be honest with you, it probably would have been in the book, but I didn't remember it until you just fucking brought it up. <laughs> well, so, shit, I should have helped you with this thing then. Yeah. It's like, whatever. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, God, this is, you've given me so much time. I don't, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I do like to end with a charity. I know you worked with like toys for tots and uh, I used to. Or you um, used to. Okay. Or do you want to give a shout out to something else? I don't care. Whatever. No, it's just, you know, honestly, just check out John I'm on Facebook, Instagram at John Karabi official. Um, as soon as I get like, I I'm, I'm hoping to release a, my first, one of my first songs, mm-hmm. I, I have them. And the way that I'm going to do it is the way I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do one song at a time, focus on that, promote that, then move on to the second song, promote that, mm-hmm. keep working on everything. And then once, once everything's set and ready to go, I, I just want to release one song at a time. And, you know, that way the fans, it, you know, 
like if you buy a record and you're like, well, I don't like these three songs. No sweat. You don't have to yeah. buy them. Okay. You buy the ones you like. Right. You know what I mean? Totally. And so, and it's direct from me to you and I'm, I'm going that route. So, um, but at the end I'll do a record and I'll do some vinyl and I'll sell it on my website, maybe Amazon, whatever, and call it a day. Okay. Whatever. Yeah. So I'll put, uh, I'll put your website in the notes, but is there, is there a charity that you work with or like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, used, you... I was working with toys for tots, but it just became like the last couple years. Like we had a lot of people that were some of my artist friends that musical friends that were playing you know, and then it just got to the point where we were asking people to come in and play um, if there was any like cost or whatever for gas, I would give them money anyway. But then it started to be like, oh, yeah, I'll play your charity. Um, give me two grand. And I'm mm. like, well, dude, it's not a fucking cha- it's not a it's a charity. Like and it, so we started pulling our hair out with a lot of the bands. And then the last couple of times, like. Um, it used to be like we would do these things. And I, I mean, my wife and I probably raised, we did it like 10 years mm. and we probably raised in this day and age, it's not a lot of money, but we probably raised about in cash, probably 250, $300,000 and then toys, you know, whatever. Damn, that's a lot. So, um, you know, but the Marines, my buddy Matt would call the Marines and they would come and pick the stuff up. And the last two times I was unfortunately on tour. So I would help set it up with my wife, but then she was stuck with the brunt of the the work. Mm. And the last two years she was calling the Marines and like, hey, can you guys send a truck again and pick the toys up? And they're like, no. Mm. So she had to rent a truck. Mm. And then. So then it was another us renting a truck. Okay. And then she was sitting there by herself because we did it at a, like, uh, I think it was New Year's Eve. We did it every year around, around Christmas. Okay. So right, it was yeah. cold. Or yeah, it was cr- cr- before Christmas. But we would do it. It'd be December, cold. So she's out in the cold, like, literally pulling all these toys in, loading a truck, you know, and then she's walking around with these satchels full of cash. and. And I'm like, no, you know, let's fucking stop. This is, it's becoming like not safe. And, you know, I can't be here to help out. So we just kind of knocked it on the head. We might do it again in the future, but right now we're. Is there another charity that you support? Like I know the Nashville has the musicians uh, association or or juvenile do abuse diabetes or is there anything? Any, anything, any like time it, we're we're going we're all going through a lot of shit covid we're going through you know nashville's been through uh tornadoes riots uh you know the covid thing musicians out of work uh we had the christmas day bombing we just had flooding like right now um i've got my motor home in my driveway plugged in and i'm letting one of my neighbors live in my motor home because his house literally last Saturday was under five feet of water. We had flooding. Oh, I think right I saw that picture the, on your Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Right across the street from my house. That's when they were cleaning up. Yeah. The night that it was happening, there was literally five, I mean, literally cars floating down the street, five feet of water. Crazy. So uh, he lost everything. So I'm letting my neighbor 
sleep in. So if it's something charitable, um, legit chatter, charitable, I'll fucking help out. I don't like, I don't like doing things like with a lot of these charities, you donate money to them and then there's administration fees. So, you know, you give a hundred percent, but literally like 89% is going to administrative fees. And then the other 11% is going to the actual charity. So I don't like doing shit like that. I like doing shit like our toys for Todd's thing. We raise cash. We raise toys. We gave it to the Marines. They went around and they bought, they bought even more toys. And then they literally go around and they give them to the list of people that need them. Mm-hmm. So that's like, again, it's like from me to you. Okay. You know what I mean? Cool. So, um, I'll do anything that's charitable if I have extra money. Um, you know, this last year has been hard on all musicians. Sure. So it's a little difficult for me. Like, you know, any other time, if my neighbor right now, I, I'd write him a check for a thousand or a couple thousand dollars and go, Oh, go get, go get a hotel room. But I can't this year. So I'm letting him stay in my coach instead. Mm-hmm. And he's like, dude, you're saving me so much money. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Great whatever. And it's not out of pocket for me. My coat should be right here at my house anyway. So I just, I just put it in my driveway instead of my backyard. It's in my driveway. It's plugged in. And then he gets up in the morning, he makes a cup of coffee and he just walks across the street and he's working on his house. Mm, So great. It's all good. Cool, man. All right. Well, uh, I will put everything in the notes and, um, and people can uh, go to your website and check everything out. And I appreciate you taking the time to do this. This is a lot of fun. Awesome, buddy. Thank you. All right. right, See see you, John. Bye-bye. So much great information, such a fascinating human being, so talented and such an interesting life that he's led thus far. Uh, I will definitely be buying his autobiography, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, whenever it comes out. And also, I look forward to new music from John. Uh, Make sure to follow him on social media so that you can keep up with everything he's doing. And while you're on there, give me a follow as well if you'd like to keep up with the podcast. Uh, You can also support the podcast by liking, sharing, commenting, or subscribing to the show. Or if you want to take the time to write a nice iTunes review, Uh, all those things help with the algorithms so that more people can find the podcast, be able to listen and help the show grow which in turn helps me get great guests like John Karabi. So thanks again to John for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day and remember to shoot for the moon.